Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Well, I'm here. You are here. I'm here and I'm queer. Get used to it. <laughs> there we go. Uh, before we go ahead and move into uh, what, we w- what we would like to discuss, though, want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. It is uh, Independence Day weekend, and I was having a uh, discussion with some folks just a little bit ago about the fact that the 4th of July falls on a Sunday this year. Yeah. And what we might expect from a 4th of July fast and testimony meeting. Aside from the testimonies, obviously, there are going to be, you know, patriotic hymns more than likely in the meeting. Do you have any particularly strong opinions on patriotic hymns? In sacrament meeting. Well, when you look at the New Testament, of course, I'm going to answer with the Bible. (laughs) There is a sense in which nationalism is idolatry. You see this very clearly in Jesus's teachings about the kingdom of heaven. You see it strongly in Revelation as well uh, with Rome. There's a sense in which duty and loyalty to country can very easily take the place of God. And it can creep into our religious traditions it can corrupt our religious traditions and i think that can very easily happen because we are a global religion like yeah this might happen in in our country where we take the fourth of july and do stuff with it but there's saints around the world for whom for the fourth of july is not the same thing it's just another date on the calendar and it shouldn't be intrinsically linked to our religion the way it is What do you think? I just have uh, complicated feelings about so many parts of it because people talk about what they feel when they look at the flag, when they hear the national anthem, when they call themselves or hear the word uh, patriot. And uh, I can't help but think to myself that given all the complicated feelings we have surrounding the sounds and the iconography of American patriotism, I think it is more than appropriate to mind the hymns that we sing in the church. Like, during a time for worship, I don't want to sing songs that encourage idolatry. Mm -hmm. And that is so Mm -hmm. much what Mm -hmm. the Star Spangled Banner does these days. You know, Mm -hmm. I stand for the anthem, yada, yada, and the recent revelations to a lot of people, including black people, about, you know, what the third verse of the Star Star Spangled Banner says. Right, a lot of white people don't know about that. And why would they? But uh, point is, we know more now than we did back then when we originally put that hymn in the hymn book. And I think that is cause for reconsidering the songs of praise, the hymns Mm -hmm. that we sing for the purpose of worship in our chapels. You know, why would we sing songs that have such complicated feelings surrounding them, especially when so many people feel a mix of shame and pride, you know, when they think about being an American. I haven't been a proud American for quite some time, but I have owned that label. I've been saying those words in the Pledge of Allegiance since I was a child, and yet at my time, at my age, mass incarceration is still a thing, Mm -hmm. Uh, redlining is still a Mm -hmm. thing, voter suppression is still a thing, discrimination in law enforcement in education, in employment, in every institution of American life is still a thing. And we as a nation and we as a church are not exercising the effort we need to really change those things. I just see a lot of hypocrisy in the nation and I see the hypocrisy in people who sing those songs, say that Pledge of Allegiance. And you know, I'm gonna get to this later when we actually get into the text for today. But we are on that covenant path, and that covenant path has still not led us to pursue a intentional, honest, and protracted course to realizing liberty and justice for all truly. So, like, until we really get there, I'm not really going to feel comfortable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. singing those songs in church. 
And until the church takes a more serious tack towards those things and actually does act like a leader in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice, I can't really take that seriously in church. And I also don't want to be singing those songs in church when it turns out that the majority of the people who are singing them aren't actually working to the ideals that they preach or worse, the songs themselves are problematic in what they talk about. Right. You know, there's a lot of things that I like about our church's statements when they come out with a statement against racism Mm -hmm. or a statement against white culture, a statement that says Black Lives Matter or the partnership with the NAACP. I hate to say they get credit for trying, (laughs) but when you actually look at what they're doing, they always, and the public relations department does this too, they carefully word it to play it very safe so as to annoy the least amount of people. Mm -hmm. They don't want to take any risks. It has to be very neutral, very palatable. And these statements that they come out with are sanitized and deodorized and declawed and nice, right? And right. I want us to pattern everything we do after Christ, and Christ acted in such a way that people wanted to kill him. Mm-hmm. He wasn't deodorized or sanitized or whateverized. He said stuff that made people want to throw him off a cliff. He said stuff that made people want to crucify him. That's what our church leaders should do. Take some risks, some not risks on the truth, right, but risks socially to say what needs to be said. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the whole point of a prophet. The prophets got stoned and killed because they were saying things that were uncomfortable for the masses to hear. And I wish our prophets would do more of that. Oh, I had another thing that I was planning to talk about a little bit later when we talk about eschatology Mm -hmm. and bringing the reality of the eschatology into the behavior of the present. There are other churches who are historically white and who have tried to do some things around anti-racism. I'm thinking of the Unitarian Universalist Association who just passed a resolution saying we're going to actually take this seriously Mm -hmm. and talk about structural and systemic racism. Did you see this document? I did. And then the Episcopal Church also had a, a, a study that they did. They did a racial justice audit. They're like, we want to have an independent assessment of where we are, how many people of color are in leadership, how many people of color are in uh, employed in our among our clergy, how is our money distributed amongst people of color, how is power distributed amongst people of color, and what have we done, and what are all the different ways that there's systemic racism, and okay, yeah, it's, it's nice liberal white people, okay? But they're, I hate to say, but they're trying. But (laughs) I think mostly it's good because they're accountable to people of color. The whole process that they did was led by and accountable to people of color. And it was, uh, we haven't done anything like that in our church. And I think that in looking at how to do anti-racist stuff in churches, we should look, of course, to the black churches and the Mm -hmm. black theological tradition. Mm -hmm. And we should also see what's going on with historically white churches that are making these efforts and seeing what they're doing well and what they're not doing well and what works and what doesn't work in creating anti-racist ecclesiastical spaces. They saw a need and they implemented something on an institutional level to address Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. That's what I want to see in the church. I want to see deliberate policy and strategy implemented. Like This is my only real, or I guess my primary criticism of what the church has recently done with the NAACP is that, you know, yeah, you can give money to organizations. You can make reparations. I believe that is, you know, an important part of the justice and reconciliation uh, work. But uh, there's time limits on all of that. And, you know, money runs out. What is the church going to do to actually address racism in the communities, racism in our own ranks? What are we going to do and what are we going to implement on an institutional level to make sure that nothing like, you know, the 126 year dispossession we committed against 
uh, black people never happens again. What are we going to do to make sure that we are on the front line of racial justice and reconciliation in the future? What are we going to do to make sure that racism isn't a problem in our congregations and not one of the first things that people think of when they think of Mormons? That is what I want to know. So um, I think if we can get on that level, I I think we would definitely be the better for it. But, you know, as the Lord's restored church, I've heard you say it many times, we should be the first. And further, we should be the best at it. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. that's what I would expect Mm -hmm. of the Lord's restored church in these latter days. So whatever we can do to get to that point, that is what I want to do. Anyway. There's a lot of stuff in DNC 76. Yeah, you want to get to it? We should... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I should get there because otherwise okay listeners let me just tell you a secret out there the less I plan the more I talk that is not a secret Derek I've been putting the people on to that oh. for literal at least a year now okay and we I didn't know this pl- I didn't really plan this one very well so watch Derek drop some bars we're gonna, the most quotable things are going to come from Derek's stream of consciousness musings so before we go right. ahead and get to those okay a little historical context for uh very little historical context. Uh, this is Doctrine and Covenant 76 that we're in today. This is a lot. Of, this is a doctrine-heavy uh, section in the Doctrine and Covenants. Basically, this is telling us what happened when Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, in the process of their translating, translating the Bible, this tells us what happened when they arrived to a certain scripture, John 5:29, and then they received a vision. And what is most uh, notable about this section is this is where we learn about the kingdoms of glory. Mm-hmm. This is actually one of, uh, you know, the beautiful parts of the doctrine is that there are contingencies for just about everybody. And that is what a merciful God does. So let's go ahead and get right into the content. How early are you starting, Derek? Because I don't have So anything. I have some content before the content. We've, we've got some pre, <laughs> pre-game thing. All some right. principles I want to lay out before we get into the actual text. Okay. Number one is, and we've said this so many times in the church, but we don't actually internalize it and live it, is that revelation is received line upon line over the course of years, depending on what people are ready for, what people are prepared for, what Mm -hmm. questions they're asking, what they need to know. And DNC 76 is not the final line on anything, right? There's things in there that may be tweaked and are tweaked by later revelation. So we need to hold that into account. But DNC 76 was the line that they were on in 1832 when they had this masterful vision. Speaking of vision, I'm not going to get into the details of this, but there's a lot of overlap with the book of Revelation itself where John, uh, also in a time of very much persecution and, and constraint, he was on the island of Patmos in the Aegean, he experienced these visions and was told to write them down and saw the vision of uh, a heavenly glory and saw the heavenly worship. And there's a lot of overlap here with this. We've got mystics throughout the centuries who are able to tap into this celestial glory here on earth. But let's talk about this line upon line. So before this, what line were they on? What The line that they were on was basically from the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon, if you read it within the Protestant background of the 1830s that everyone was coming from, you would read the Book of Mormon and think that there's a heaven and a hell. And that there was this binary thing, and if you're faithful, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And that's the line they were on. People say, I... this bugs me in the church that they say, oh, doctrine never changes. Like, doctrine is eternal. It doesn't change. Our doctrine changed in 1832. We had a simple heaven and hell based on a a clear reading of the Book of Mormon, not very reflective. But then we built on that line in 1832 with this tripartite heaven, with this idea of that basically everyone's going to be saved. I call it consensual universalism because it God's not going to force anyone into heaven. It's basically anyone who wants to be in heaven is going to be there, right? It's it's basically universalistic, right? Interesting. Yeah. And so this is a major line, and uh, you hinted at this in some of your historical stuff, but a lot of the people revolted. The people that came from a Campbellite background, 
revolted at this and people were upset at this revelation because it was universalistic mm -hmm. and there was a lot of tension with universalists at this time. But I wanna go to another line that happened in 1836, basically um, four years later. This is the revelation that happened where it was also another vision where Joseph saw Alvin, his brother, his dead brother in the celestial kingdom and he was shocked. Now, why was he shocked? Because Alvin was unbaptized. So Alvin right. died in 1823, and then in 1836, 12 years later, Joseph received the vision in section 137. And I actually want to read these verbatim. Here's verses 7 through 9. All right. Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all that shall die henceforth. So, not just Alvin in the past, uh, who died before the restoration of the gospel, but mm -hmm. anyone in the future who dies without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. Now, this is radical, because it ends up with these uh, sort of conditional uh, things to it. Like, it's not like, oh, what you did, but you what you would have done if you had the opportunity. That is what we call in a philosophy counterfactuals. Like, uh, I would have been there if this other thing had happened. Well, it didn't happen, so it's not factual. But these sort of counterfactual things, that actually plays a role in our salvation, which if you take that to its logical conclusion, what does that mean for queer people? Well, A, I'm gonna be judged according to the desire of my hearts. I have nothing to be afraid of, right? If I don't cross all the lines, if I don't get sealed to a woman, if I don't X, Y, Z, if I don't blah, 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 right? I do not have the cultural anxiety that many Latter-day Saints were raised with because I trust the Lord. The Lord knows the desire of my hearts. The Lord knows that if I had been straight, I would have married a woman, right? But I'm not, right? I'm clearly not. <laughs> so this is this makes sense. It's radical to say that I'm gonna be judged not based on my opportunities, because I do not have the opportunity to mm -hmm. validly marry a woman in this life or the next. Mm -hmm. I'm 100% gay. Mm -hmm. But what are the desires of my hearts? The desires of my hearts are to fulfill the covenants as best as I can with what I've been given and nothing will be lacking for me in the next life. I don't know exactly what that's gonna look like, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid that I'm not gonna see grandma again because I'm not sealed to a woman. Like, mm -hmm. nope, Satan's lies have no power over me. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the line that they were on in 1836 that said, well, people who die without baptism, without the knowledge of, they're gonna have a chance. Like, it'll all, it'll all work out somehow. Now that principle can be abused, and I'll talk about that later. All right. We talk about this plan of salvation as though it were complete and all spelled out, and you just gotta check off the little thingy, like a flight plan, right? You got everything laid out. But this is saying, there's stuff outside the plan. And if you can't do the plan, but you would have done it if you could, based on- Is the plan in quotes? Yeah, I'm putting the plan in quotes because I don't think the plan is complete. Right. Our knowledge of the plan isn't complete. Our knowledge of the plan isn't complete, okay. Right. We don't know what queer people should do. We literally uh -huh. don't. Right. And that's not been revealed. Right. And I'm not worried about that because I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I, had there been a path for you, had there been an opportunity for you, you know you would have been on it. Yeah, I'm the same type of person that if I had been a woman and, or oh, I mean, if I had, well, whatever I had been, if I, there had been a plan for me, I would have taken it, right? Right. But I'm not gonna do it because I can't. Right. And what this is saying is that you're not gonna be judged based on what you can't do. Right. Because it says, I will judge them according to not what they got done, according mm -hmm. to not what their opportunities were or weren't, but according to the desire of their hearts. And right. if I live into the desires of my hearts, I can, 
I'm going to take that to judgment day and say, mm-hmm. look, I'm, it's all open. I didn't check off this little thing. What you thought was this covenant checklist, this covenant path, this covenant whatever, I didn't do them, right? <laughs> but that's not how I'm going to be judged. Right. Anyway, my, I, I, I'm just so excited about how radical the implications of this are. Do you absolutely. get it? Oh, like, absolutely. It like, gives people a lot of hope. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, you said it yourself. If there's no path, then, you know, you're not going to be, if there's no path for you, then you're not going to, you're not going to be judged for not being able to walk a path that actually was never present for you. And, you know, that is radical and that is hopeful. That gives people hope who would otherwise walk the covenant path if they could, but, you know, can't because, you know, for whatever reasons, in your case, being a gay man who just, it doesn't make sense for you to try to marry a woman. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, man, it is radical, and it is life-giving, and it is hopeful. The other thing about this um, line upon line is another line that we get in the New Testament is that the first shall be last. And I think oh, there yes. are a lot of people who hear that think they have a celestial advantage here that they're going to be surprised in the next life. <laughs> That's the whole meaning of the parable in Matthew 20 about the laborers in the vineyard, mm-hmm. that everyone was surprised right. by what they got. First point was line upon line, and second is that doctrine changes. Like, our doctrine literally has changed on this so many times. Mm-hmm. In 1832, in 1836, then when we got the sealing power, that changed again. Yep. Uh, there are yep. so many ways that the doctrine has changed, and every time they get mad. Let me go to point number three. Okay. It's about binary busting. We had this heaven and hell and this is something that the queer thinking brings in is like it frustrates and blurs the categories. It dissolves the boundaries between these categories. And now we've got not just three kingdoms, but we've got in my father's house, there are many mansions. I think every person is going to have an individualized experience, mm-hmm. right? Based on what they're prepared for, what they're capable of, what they sign up for. Mm-hmm. So heaven is going to look different to everybody. Right, and I don't think it's like isolated kingdoms where you're locked from each other. I think it's just people all in the same, quote, place, but they're just animated and energized by a different way of life, Mm -hmm. right? Some people are going to live into a higher responsibility than others. Mm -hmm. Number four, inventing words, like the word telestial. Queer people invent words all the time, (laughs) in part because, and this isn't just a joke, because we're trying to find words for something that there's that busts the categories. There was no word for telestial. Joseph needed one. There's no word for half of these um, gender orientation categories. So people find words that speak to the truth of their experience. Point five, let's talk about inaugurated eschatology. A lot of people think about eschatology being just future, but many of our systematic theologians have divided it now into inaugurated eschatology and then future eschatology. Or sometimes they call it realized eschatology in the sense that you get a little bite of the future in the present and somehow the kingdom is already inaugurated in this world and it's unfolding in this world and the potential is seen here in this world. Would this be like kind of what Martin Luther King Jr. was alluding to in his mountaintop speech? Right, right, yes. But this gets into my sixth point that these degrees of glory are really degrees of responsibility. They're not degrees of happiness. They're not degrees of inclusion. But when you look at the, when you take upon yourself additional covenants, you're actually taking upon yourself further weight. Okay. And I think it's significant that the word kavod in Hebrew, which is the word for glory, actually is also the word connected to the word for weight, like how heavy something is. Like that's glory, it's something heavy. And to me, I don't think we should feel bad about, for example, if you say, Derek, tomorrow you're going to be the CEO of Amazon, I literally would not be happy. I would not want all that responsibility. I would crack under the pressure. I would say, no, I don't want that. Like giving me responsibilities that I don't want won't make me happy. It will make someone happy who wants those responsibilities. Same thing with Mm -hmm. marriage. Marriage Mm -hmm. is a big covenant and a big responsibility. If you magically married me to a random person tomorrow, I am not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. 
Not gonna be happy. Well, it depends on who it is. <laughs> 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 but I am. I don't want that responsibility tomorrow. Right. Marriage for people who are ready for that responsibility. It's one of the most happy things in the world. But that same responsibility dumped on me before I'm ready will not make me happy. So I don't think the degrees of responsibility in the uh, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial kingdoms are degrees of happiness. It's like, oh yeah, you want more work? You'll you'll get happy from that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't want that more work, we're not gonna dump it on you. So what you're saying is the different degrees of glory isn't so much a punitive thing, but rather this is what you wanted, so this right, is what you're going right. to get. It's, it's what have you covenanted, what, res, what responsibilities have you covenanted to do? Mm -hmm. And if you haven't made those covenants, you don't have to have that burden. So heaven truly will be heaven for all those people because that, it's literally what I mean, what that's literally what it says in 76. Mm -hmm. Like all of these are gonna be places where people are gonna be their happiest. Mm -hmm. Yet again, another radical thing. Yeah, so I don't think people should be worried about shooting for a lower kingdom. I mean, if, <laughs> like that, I think that, I mean, that speaks to that that what we're gonna do in the next life is that the, I don't think we're assigned into these kingdoms. I think we live into them. Mm. I think that they reflect our preparedness and our choices mm -hmm. and not an external judgment. I like that. It's beautiful. Oh, there's not time to say everything I want to say. <laughs> what do you want to say? Let's let's have you talk for a while. All right. All and I we'll wanted to mention was something that I noticed in 76 verse uh, verse 15. I'll uh, read uh, this verse real quick. For this is uh, talking about the translation. While we were doing the work of translation, which the Lord had appointed unto us, we came to the 29th verse of the fifth chapter of John, which was given unto us as follows. And then it quotes the verse. And something that just made me stop at this was that um, this revelation came in the middle of another assignment. Like this wasn't part of the original mm -hmm. plan. Joseph Smith and Sidney Reagan were told they were commanded to translate the Bible. And this whole revelation was something that we got as a result of them simply being mindful of the task as they were doing it. They wanted to learn. As they were translating the Bible, they were like, we want to not just get through the task. We want to understand what we're reading. And it was in that desire to understand what they were reading that the Spirit held them up at this verse, at verse 29 in chapter 5. And that's how we got this entire revelation. There's something to be said of the Lord uh, giving us one task and then him teaching us a heck of a lot more along the way. The Lord asked Joseph and Sidney to do that work of translation. This isn't, even, this isn't even the first time this has happened in the scriptures. It's not the first time this has happened in the Doctrine and Covenants. We saw this back at the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph and Oliver were translating the Book of Mormon. They were reading through the Book of Mormon. They got to the part uh, in the Book of Mosiah about baptism, and they wanted to know, oh, what does this mean? Does this mean we need to get baptized? And then the revelation on baptism came, the revelation on authority, and the subsequent restoration of the priesthood authority came as a result of them paying attention and being mindful of what they were reading as they were accomplishing one of the tasks that the Lord had given them to do. We saw this in the Book of Mormon as well. We saw this when uh, Nephi uh, was going through the wilderness, when he got the vision of the Tree of Life, uh, or when Lehi got the vision of the Tree of Life. Nephi, unprovoked by the Lord, asked for his own vision, and we got a whole lot of other doctrine as a result of Nephi doing that much. Oftentimes, in giving us a commandment, the Lord gives us an opportunity to receive and understand other commandments, other principles, other doctrines, if we are open to them. Have you ever read The Alchemist, by chance? No. Okay, there's this little allegory or parable thing in The Alchemist. I think uh, colloquially it's referred to as the uh, allegory of the two drops of oil on the spoon. Basically, in this story, the master of the house has this young man he tasks him with the he tasks them to take this spoon, puts two drops of oil on it, and he says, Walk through the whole house and then come see me. Like walk about the whole estate and then come see me when you're done. It would take about two hours. So the young man did this, and then when he got back, uh, the master of the house asked him, Well, what'd you think of the house? Did you see my beautiful tapestries in my living room? Did you see my dope bathroom? Did you see my yard? Like all mm -hmm. that. And the young man was like, oh, no, I didn't see any of that. And then 
He was like, go back again, and this time take in the scenery. Same assignment, walk through the house without, the, without dropping the oil, but check out the whole house. The second time the young man walked through the house, he had a much richer experience. He appreciated it a lot more. He saw everything. And like the experience is what the experience was much richer. But he came out the house, and this time the master, where was the two drops of oil I had trusted you with? He realized he dropped the oil. And uh, then the young man didn't know what to say. But basically, he was like, This is all the wisdom I have to offer you. That is, and that's the whole parable. Walking mm-hmm. through the whole house, being attentive enough to the original assignment, but also being mindful of taking in your surroundings and of seeing what else life has to offer you as you walk about the house. I feel like this is a lesson that has been taught to us multiple times in the scriptures, that even as the Lord is giving us one single commandment, there are other lessons along the way, other objects he wants us to take care and mind of. I feel like a lot of the times, especially with... Uh, you know, more sensitive issues, particularly with people of the marginalized. I feel like the saints would do a lot better and have a lot easier of a time figuring out the answers to these problems if we took the same mindset that Joseph and Sidney had as they were translating the book, of, uh, translating the Bible and the Book of Mormon. There were lessons that were telling them what they needed in order to help build Zion, in order to embrace more fully um, the gospel. You know, if you uh, follow us on Instagram, you saw me explain this whole story. But basically, there was a lot of homophobia in my elders quorum last week, and it was very unfortunate. Um, And I wasn't there. Derek was not there. In fact, no people that were out of the closet were there, uh, so far as I can tell. but what happened was, and what like really got under my skin was, the setup to the lesson was good in my opinion. Like the elders quorum president asked the right question. You know what I'm saying? And um, it was the people, it was the members of the quorum that kind of took this in an opposite direction. Basically, I just got a lot of people who were affirming the conventional ways of teaching the law of chastity and the uh, family proclamation in ways that do not affirm uh, members of the LGBTQ community, when ironically enough, that was the whole purpose of the discussion. How do we live into our calling as members of the church, as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, while making sure that we are able to also affirm and also bring in members of the LGBTQ community? And I feel like a big missing ingredient to this conversation was the fact that nobody in their reading of the family proclamation, nobody in their learning of the law of chastity, nobody has really taken the proper promenade around the scriptures to really say, oh, this is something we can use in an effort to both affirm and be disciples of Christ. I don't feel like we are really conditioned as members of the church to do that much. Because nobody, not a single person mm-hmm. in this conversation affirmed, nobody who affirmed anyway, the non-affirming, uh, uh, the non-affirming teachings that negatively affect LGBTQ folks, none of them talked about the consequences. None of them talked about the consequences of the non-affirming teachings. And that is where we often mess up. That is where we miss opportunities for serious, practical, theological engagement mm-hmm. of you know what we have as an institution and what we have as disciples of Christ. I feel like we often focus t- uh, so much on making sure we don't drop those two little drops of oil mm-hmm. that we miss mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. the ample opportunity to really take in what is around us and how that can also enrich our theological and institutional experience. That is what I saw that day. I saw a bunch of men, a bunch of straight, mostly white men, affirm, choose to affirm an incomplete teaching over actual people. That is not something disciples of Christ should do. Yeah, that's not what Christ did. It's not what Christ did. And um, as far as a plan of action goes, tomorrow, like as of this recording, it's going to be yesterday, but tomorrow is open mic Sunday. I do plan on bearing my testimony because I want to make doubly sure that homophobia is not welcome in my ward. And I want to bear testimony of that Jesus. I want to bear testimony of the Jesus who favored that kind of compassion over the stringent legalism that I saw in my elders quorum. I want to bear testimony of the Jesus that healed a leper when he wasn't supposed to touch a leper. 
I want to bear testimony of the Jesus who healed on the Sabbath when you should have been stoned for working on the Sabbath. I want to bear testimony of the Jesus who spent time among the people of the margins, the socially dispossessed, when that would have made him. I want to, I want to bear testimony of the Jesus who fraternized with Samaritans, who fraternized with, uh, you know, fraternized with women of ill repute, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to bear testimony mm-hmm. of that Jesus who knew which rules to break. Yeah, yeah. And I think the problem is, now I wasn't there for this, uh, but I imagine that these dudes who got up there and testified of the proclamation and the whatever and whatever, I think a lot of it goes back to my homophobia's autobiography. Like, hurting queer people is probably not their main goal. It's a a necessary side effect of achieving their goal. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think their goal is, well, the brethren must be right because I need the brethren to be right because they have the authority that will let me see grandma again. I really think when you get down to it, they want to be sealed as an eternal family. They want to see grandma again. And that is more important than reflecting on this whole uh it's actually a hostage situation. Like, I'm going to hold your grandma hostage. You won't see her again unless you do everything I say and unless you believe all the bre- what the brethren say, unless you lean on the brethren's authority to seal people together and the, the authority that's implicit in these ordinances and those who hold the keys to these ordinances, unless you subscribe to that whole thing, you're not going to see grandma again. That's really hostage situation with a huge ransom that gets paid by queer people so you're saying these people have basically been compromised you know they are yeah i mean i don't think they're out to punch homos in the face no they're not but you know when i say compromised i mean they've been put in a precarious situation that requires them to harm people that they would otherwise not harm in order for them to get their quote-unquote reward. Right. They're afraid that if they deny the proclamation, if they deny that the brethren are teaching right on this, they are afraid that they're never going to see grandma again, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I really think that that is the the psychological thing that's underneath all this. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of like natural homophobia too. Oh, certainly. Right? Certainly. But what really perpetuates it in this, in the face, now the natural homophobia, you can kind of, clean up just by meeting queer people and, and right. deconstructing all of those awful things that, that that as soon as you meet one of us you know they can't be true. Right. This other stuff is much more um, resistant to repentance because mm-hmm. they something in that's important to them is necessarily tied up with the dispossession of my people. Right. And when you've got them like that, you've got them hostage. They're holding grandma hostage. They're holding their eternal family hostage. I'm like, I'm exempt from that because I'm not afraid to lean into what I know of Christ, to lean into what I know of, well, I'll be judged by the desires of my hearts. Right. Like, and, um, yeah, like, wow, I, er, I've got a lot of, <laughs> maybe what I should really do is is pick some of these things to say and then, and then online, maybe this week, make some posts on Facebook about some of these things. Uh, let me just do a whirlwind tour of some things. All right, let's oh, go. One is I want to name that Emanuel Swedenborg, who was a uh, Swedish scientist, theologian, philosopher, and a mystic. He had visions in the 1700s. And he had some thoughts that parallel some of the things in Doctrine and Covenant 76. And it's likely that, it's certain that, that Alexander Campbell knew and quoted and engaged with Emanuel Swedenborg. And Ridney, uh, Sidney Rigdon was a an associate of Campbell for a while. And so it's li- it's almost certain that at the time of this revelation, Sidney Rigdon at least, and maybe Joseph himself knew of Swedenborg. But Swedenborg had a tripartite heaven Swedenborg had three kingdoms of, or degrees of heaven. The first kingdom was the celestial kingdom. The second kingdom was the spiritual kingdom. And the third kingdom was the 
natural kingdom. And these were actually concentric with the celestial in the middle and then the them going outward. Um, and Swedenborg himself connected this with the third heaven vision of Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12. Now, uh, Swedenborg also had the idea that marriages can, he, can last into the next life as well. There's a lot of overlap that I think that Swedenborg as a mystic authentically tapped into the truths that he was able to receive at that time. And this prepares the way for the restoration of the gospel in uh, the 18, uh, 1800s. Now, I think some people might be a little bit weird about this, like, oh no, did Joseph plagiarize? I'm like, let me just tell you something about religion. All religion is plagiarized. All religion <laughs> is remixed. All religion is building line upon line about what you know and what questions you have asked. And if Joseph were prompted by knowledge of Swedenborg to take this to the Lord, or if Joseph had this amazing vision that he didn't have words for, he was going to put some of Swedenborg's words on it. Like, that is totally fair. Totally fair. And in fact, if you look at the end of the section 76, it talks about how, well, there's stuff that we didn't have the words for. And if you look very carefully, I'm not going to get into this, but if you look very carefully at the text and compare it to, for example, Hebrews, let me just look up this reference right here. If you look at DNC 76 verses 66 through 69 and compare that to Hebrews 22, uh, 12 verses 23 to 24, there are some verbatim parallels here. It is clearly a literary direct borrowing of the words from Hebrews 12. There's This cannot be a coincidence. You have dozens and dozens of words in the same sequence with minor tweaking that end up in DNC 76. I'm not going to read them because you really need to see this. I might make a post on that. But you can see this all throughout 76 is that Rigdon, who knew the Bible very well, of course, he was a Campbellite uh, trained minister, knew the Bible very well. He put some of these biblical words on the vision that they experienced, which reminds me of what the real takeaway of 76 is, is you can do it too, I can do it too. They were meditating on the scripture, they experienced a, wisdom, uh, a vision from God, they tried to put language on it, they were commanded to write it. Maybe we won't be commanded to write what we experience, but when you look at it towards the end of 76, it says things like, yeah, there's stuff that can't be uttered, but it's up to you to see it on yourself. Verse 116, Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him. So it's saying, look, Joseph and Sidney are saying, we can't give you everything we got. You got to get it yourself. That is radically empowering, right? Those who love him, those who prepare themselves, they'll get this directly from the Holy Spirit. Everything they do, we can do the same. Verse 117 to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves. How many saints in the church don't think that they can see and know for themselves that they just got to outsource it to whatever the brethren spoon feed them? This is a bombshell, right? Like, this is why I joined the church. Like, we've got a treasure here that the saints don't even appreciate. I've tapped into it. I've seen it myself, and I just can't believe that all these saints are playing with crumbs when they've got an entire feast on the table above them that they don't think that they can get, right? You know, when you put it like that, Derek. You know. I want everyone to join the church. If you're listening and you're not a member of the church, you should consider whether this is the right step for you because th there's stuff here that not even the saints appreciate. Unfortunately, that is true. And um, there's a lot of things that I know that I myself have taken for granted and that, you know, just my association with you, Derek, has let me know about. There are just a lot of things that we do that don't make a lot of sense in terms of how rich our theology, how rich our doctrine is, how rich our tradition is, but we don't take advantage of it because either we don't care to know about it or because it's difficult or because we don't need to, you know? There are a lot of people to whom the church 
unfortunately is little more than a social organization to them therefore they don't do a lot of this hard heavy lifting Mm -hmm. or it's a ticket to seeing grandma again and they don't care about anything else like i want to be with my i want to be with my wife and kids again that's Mm -hmm. their their goal and jesus is just the being used to get there Mm -hmm. there's a richness in this part of the text here or in this part of the tradition that teaches us that we can have so much more and way too often and you know unfortunately this tends to be by design but way too often it's those folks on the margins that come to a realization of this stuff because we actually need it exactly exactly and that is why you cannot learn as you are too many times i really love what james cone said but like i really believe that trying to understand Christianity from a white point of view is like trying to understand Jesus from a Roman point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just, it just doesn't work because the need is not there. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is found in the margins, and so is this richness. We know this stuff because we need to. This is, re- right. this is required for us. The richness of the tradition that is present here, we found it because, again, we need it, and it's required not just for our salvation, but also our sanity, our safety, our security, and mm-hmm. our relationship with you know Christ. Mm-hmm. Everybody could have this if they spent a little more time in the margins, right. and everybody should have this just based on what is written in this text. Everybody should. It's almost it's written almost like a commandment here, you know? Yeah. Because like, why wouldn't you want this? It's written in a way as if to say, why wouldn't you want this? And that's that's the real reason why the last shall be first. It's not like someone artificially playing gotcha afterward. It's the people who are last have to do the work, mm-hmm. and then on the in the end, we're going to be the ones that are prepared. We're going to be the ones that are solid in our faith. We're going to be the right. ones that didn't use borrowed oils. Right. We've got our own oils, mm-hmm. and that's why the first shall be last and the last shall be first, not because there's something against the first. Yeah. This is just, yeah. And I want to talk about Jürgen Moltmann. He is, like I said, this uh, German theologian. He was, let me just, oh, man, I'm running out of time. Anyway. <laughs> The So he was a very young man drafted into the German army in World War II, and he survived and was a prisoner of war and was very horrified when he found out exactly what happened. And he said, um, he's one of the ones who said, we have to do theology differently after Auschwitz. And he talked a lot about hope. He talked a lot about eschatology. And his view, he wrote a very influential book called The Theology of Hope. He's one of the most important and influential 20th century uh, theologians. And here's what he said about hope. He says the doctrine, he, he defines eschatology as the doctrine of Christian hope, which embraces both the object hoped for and also the hope inspired by it. So you've got both the future object and the present day hope in, uh, inspired by that. And he doesn't want to talk about just the end times. This resonates with a lot of things that I've said before. And he actually influenced uh, Gustavo Gutierrez in his theology of liberation. And um, Moltmann is very famously in his liberation theology says that uh, the oppressed and the oppressor both need reconciliation and both need to be delivered from the oppression. That oppression has two sides that destroys the humanity on both sides, both the dominant and the disempowered. And um, another thing that Moltmann said is that our future hope, our eschatology, you would think it would bring us contentment, right? Like I've got this contentment about everything's going to be fixed in the end. But Moltmann paradoxically said that the Christian hope should make you discontent in this world. When you look around you and seeing where it could be and where it should be and where it is, it makes you want to do something in this world. So this should this should stab the heart of the lie that, oh, it'll all be fixed in the next life, right? I don't want to hear that. I mean, there's times where it is okay to say that, but if you're saying that instead of doing something that actually can be done, then you've got a problem. Like this doesn't work in any other part of our development. If I said, you know what? I don't need to work to become righteous in this life. 
I'll get righteous in the next life. It'll be fixed in the last life. Like, whatever. I'll just be unrighteous. And we don't say that, right? We try to be righteous in this life in preparation for and because of our hope and our righteousness in the next. We're trying to live into that future. And I want to, for me, eschatology isn't about the curiosities of exactly what's going to happen. Here's, you know, these end times people, they map it all out to the day and year and the whatever. I'm like, that's that's way way too way too much work and there's no security as to that that any of that has any confidence but for me eschatology isn't knowing exactly what's going to happen it's about my questions are how does eschatology change our behavior today how do we live into the reality that's going to come how do we inaugurate that reality into this world how do we live into the justice and the peace now, how does our eschatology change our worship? How does our eschatology change our prayer? Talking about worship, we don't really worship really well in our church, I don't think, compared to other traditions. Let me go back to what 76 says uh, in verses 20 and 21. It talks about beholding the glory of the the Father and the Son and, and receiving of his fullness. And then in verse 21, seeing the angels and those humans who are sanctified before his throne, worshiping God and the Lamb who worship him forever and ever. And this is very parallel to what we see in Revelation, uh, especially chapters four and five, which I think are the greatest worship texts in the New Testament. If you want to know what worship is like in heaven and how it should be on earth, we've got we've got a good resource there. Speaking of eschatological fulfillment, let's look at verse 94. It says, "They who dwell in his presence are the church of the firstborn, and they see as they are seen and know as they are known, having received of his fullness and of his grace." Now, what does it say about gay people? Yeah, we're going to be known. Like, we're not fully seen right now, but there's a place for us, and we're going to know as we are known by God, and then people are going to know know us, right? I think there's a lot of liberatory potential in 76, where a lot of people want to read it woodenly of like, oh, you have to fit into this very narrow definition of family. That definition of family is like 1950s America. It's not even common to all cultures. It's not common to all centuries. It's not common to all classes of people. It's a very artificial picture of a family, which isn't even the biblical picture of the family. I'm repeating stuff we've said elsewhere, but I think it, we need to repeat it, right? Yeah. And there's also a post-colonial problem. There's also a white supremacy problem where mm-hmm. we colonize the world with a very particular understanding of what family looks like and what gender looks like. And mm-hmm. yeah, hello, not the rest of the world thinks right. of gender the <laughs> same way you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, not speaking, even the rest of America quote right. unquote, thinks of gender the same way we do. Yeah, and speaking of, uh, let me just go back to uh, this idea of the future being, uh, a lot of us in, in the world think of the present as determined by the past. Like the past sets up things that have causational effect on the present and that limits the options of here's what you can do in the present, here's what you can't do in the present based on the past. So the present is determined by the past whereas for Moltmann uh, Moltmann um, and Moltmann has has been one of my influences that I I don't think I've actually traced for people where this came from but for Moltmann it's actually the reverse it's the future that determines the present Hmm. and I think that's, that's really beautiful because then that says something about the present and it says something about how eschatology should shape our moral and social uh, behaviors in this world. And let me figure out how to tie Jesus into this because Jesus took the eschatological promises of the Hebrew Bible, especially Isaiah, and applied them to today in Luke chapter 4. So Luke 4, 18 through 21, this is where Jesus quotes Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, proclaiming good news, freeing the captives, setting free those who are oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And then he, whoa, he really got people mad at this. He said, they said, 
Um, then he began to tell them, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. So he took this eschatological promise and ooched it into today and they wanted to throw him off a cliff, mm-hmm. right? Why, are, why isn't President Nelson doing something that makes people want to throw him off a cliff? Like, I don't know. Like I if no I were president, if I were president of the church, you better believe that there's you know there's people online that I think want to throw me off a cliff now, <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably. Probably. We'll see what happens. Let me go into chapter. Uh, I mean, verse sixty. All right. Okay. It says, "And they shall overcome all things." It says, "We shall overcome all things." That means we're going to overcome racism. We're going to overcome sexism and ableism. We're going to overcome economic injustice. We're going to overcome uh, fear and devastation and hatred. We're going to overcome all things. And tying in with what Moltmann said, this affects our behavior in the present. If we're going to overcome all those things, we need to rehearse that overcoming right now. And I think that's exactly what Jesus did. Everything he did was an inbreaking of the kingdom of God, right? Yeah, in the future, everyone's going to be uh, fed, right? And so he fed people in this life. Every, uh, he healed people. He uh, cast out demons. He did all these other things, which is a a jump start. Is that the right word? No. What's the what's the word where you're at a race and you you start before the you're supposed to start? Oh, false start. Yeah, a false start. Yeah, if you start running the race before you're supposed to start, you get a you jump in before it's time. That's what Jesus did. He's taking this uh, the eschatological promises of the Hebrew Bible and saying, you know what? We're not waiting. We're doing it now. And yeah, this should this should go back to like, oh, everything will be fixed. Okay, yeah, everything will be fixed. But how does that change your behavior today? Are you living into it or are you running away from it? Mm. Mm. We didn't even really get to go into a lot of the details. That's the work that you have to do on your own. That's like we can't share our oils with you for every <laughs> verse. You need to do this work on your own because – Studying the gospel isn't about information, it's about transformation. Mm. And you say that like I've never said that before. I mean, it's a bar every time, so let me just yeah. let me just enjoy it, Derek. Yeah, Come okay. On, so, so yeah, go ahead and definitely study 76. Remember what line that's on. Remember that you can do the same. You've been invited to do the same. Uh, Joseph and Sydney clearly said that they can't do it all for you. There's things that you they can't do for you. You need to do for yourself. Okay. So let me just go ahead and wrap this ish up real quick. Uh, before we do, want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. Mm-hmm. And also on Facebook. Also on Facebook. Uh, we got a couple. No, we got one event coming up. We apologize, guys. We uh, fixed this in our show notes, but we did not uh, post this anywhere. We did not actually do um, our His Name is Green Flake watch party on the 2nd. That has actually been moved to the 9th. So uh, if you guys still want to join us for that, you are more than welcome to. We'll put the link to tickets in the show notes, and uh, you can join Derek and I and uh, Mally Bonner, the uh, Mally Bonner, the director, uh, to uh, you know watch and talk a little bit about uh, the mm-hmm. movie. There, um, Mally is going to keep doing these premieres. Uh, for the next couple weeks up until the official release date, which is going to be on Pioneer Day. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So 
deliciously prophetically petty i love it yeah just but yeah um if you want to see it with us though we're doing it july 9th so uh, it's going to be 8 p.m eastern 6 p.m uh mountain time 8 30 6 30 i don't even remember no more don't quote me on any of this but it's around that time i'm going to put the time in the notes and uh, again the link to the website where the watch parties will be available to look for ticket information as well as time that'll also be in the show notes any other events we got coming up yes so i'm going to be hosting a weekly conversation on blair osler's book queer queer mormon theology and introduction that's going to start sundays uh starting sunday july 11th i'm not sure you what time yet but in the afternoon or evening sometime so watch out for that get the book it's available in print there's also a Kindle version, and now there's an audiobook version, too. So make sure you get that before we get started. If there's nothing else, then thank you all for joining us this week. Till we meet again next week. Till we meet later. Bye-bye.